let me begin the message by saying uh, I feel so incredibly blessed to be able to do what I do. Uh, most, uh, I shouldn't say most, but lots of people don't love their work. They don't like their jobs. Uh, I love my job. I love what I get to do. Um, I, I, I like you guys. I love you guys. But I, I mostly find myself madly in love with the church. I love the church. And if you don't know my story, you might not know that I'm kind of a, a lifer in this. I'm a preacher's kid. My earliest memories uh, find myself somewhere in a pew somewhere, in a fellowship hall, in somebody's church. We grew up in a black church, so we went to church three, four times a week on, on a light week. If we're being lazy, we went three or four times. And so I've just had this baptism into all things uh, church. And so I've seen a lot, I've experienced a lot. And so some of people might have thought that I was absolutely out of my mind uh, when I decided uh, about 10 years ago to gather some friends around me and to plant uh, this church that we've experienced all kinds of God's goodness and joy here. Despite what I saw, despite what I experienced, despite seeing my parents wrestle through pastoring people, I still decided that the church is something that I wanted to give my entire life to. And you might have this question in the back of your mind, why would anybody in their right mind devote their lives to the church? Well, the truth is, I believe in the church. I really, really believe in the church. That when I consider everything that's wrong with the world, all that is broken... It occurred to me some years ago that what God wants to do by way of transforming and fixing what is wrong, repairing what is broken, God generally wants to do that healing work through the church. With all of its fractures and all of its failings and shortcomings, the shameful ways that the church has been on the wrong side of history with all of its factions and denominations, all of its many uh, congregations all over the world, all of its splintered craziness. Yet, when God looks at us, he sees us as his favorite tool, his favorite tool that he seeks to use to fix what is wrong with the world. Friends, God's big plan includes the church. Um, But I think we shouldn't go without saying that sometimes we have a problem Uh, when it comes to carefully and faithfully defining just what the church is. Ed Stetzer, who is a pastor, uh, he's right now the interim pastor at Moody Church in downtown Chicago. He's a researcher. He's a Christian missiologist. Uh, But uh, Ed Stetzer was visiting with some vineyard uh, leaders uh, earlier this year in the Chicago area. And as he was talking to us and challenging us, he said, that the modern-day Christian leader is very much like a chess player. And he didn't compare the modern-day church leader to a really good player or even an average player. He likened uh, the Christian leader to a really bad chess player. And one of the things that really bad chess players have in common is they have a tendency to over-rely on the queen. And if you don't play chess, you might not know that the queen is the most, one of the most powerful pieces. It can move. Uh, it's more agile. It can capture in ways. And so if you're learning chess, as I'm teaching my kids chess, they're just surprised. They're giddy about how much they can do 
with this queen as opposed to the other pieces. And so they tend to over-rely on it such that when they lose their queen, the game's over for them. And so Ed Setzer likened the Christian leaders, modern Christian leaders, to bad chess players because we tend to over-rely on our queen. And he defines our queen as this building, brick-and-mortar building programs, the Sunday gathering, while it's important, it is not the only tool in our bag. And as Setzer says that we have over-relied on the church, and in our modern era where churchmanship is not what it used to be, with this Sunday gathering and going to church and the importance of church and trying not to miss church and a commitment to this Sunday gathering is waning in significant ways some Christian leaders are finding themselves without the most valuable peace. And I think that is true because many of us have defined church as this brick and mortar building. They've defined church as the Sunday gatherings and the small groups and all of the activities of the church. And we've slowly begun to over-rely on this. But how many of you know that we are the church? Uh, The people are the church. And to the degree that we understand that and have that truth cemented in our hearts, unless we do that, we'll always be overvaluing and over-relying on things, and we won't be a people on mission, and we won't find ourselves doing what God has put us here to do in light of that, I have the privilege of beginning a brand new sermon series that I'm simply calling this morning, We Are the Church. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus promised, I will build my church. And what did he mean by this? Is he talking about building a structure, building a building? Did he have a particular denomination in mind? If he did, I'd like to think that perhaps he, he had the vineyard in mind, and everybody else is kind of off a little bit, but he had us in mind, but that's probably not true. Did he think of the church as an institution where powerful men get to say what is what and report, report to hear from God? It is common for all of these to be acceptable definitions or synonyms of the word church, but none of these words quite get at what Christ had in mind when he made that faithful promise that he would build his church. It's true, friends, that the church refers to the people and not the building or any. Else. It's true that the Greek word that is commonly translated church in our English Bibles is ekklesia. And when this word ekklesia is used, it is talking about a gathering or a group of people and not a building or an institution or anything like that. And so when Jesus says he will build his church, he's saying that what he would do in saving the world is bring together a group of people with common mission, common vision, common focus, and that Jesus would love this group of people so much that he would, what, give himself for it. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Christ loved this church so much that he gave himself for it. 
Another common metaphor that is often used to describe Christ's people is the body. You ever hear that? The body of believers or the body of Christ. And this is a powerful, unifying description of who we, the people, the church, is supposed to be. And this metaphor is especially important in the day where you couldn't, you couldn't slice the demographic pie anymore, right? You couldn't divide us anymore. We couldn't be more separate. We couldn't be more separate and segregated and indifferent to the lives and cultural needs of others than we are today. And so it's helpful for us to see ourselves, as diverse as we are, the church universal, as one body, many parts. One body, many parts. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both Jew and Gentile, different kinds of folks, he's made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, and that he might reconcile them both to God in what? One body through the cross, thereby putting to death enmity. We're no longer odds for those of us who are in Christ. Uh, we are one body. I just want to let you know that we intend to talk a lot about meaningful diversity and the role that that plays in us being the folks who God has called us to be. But the goal of this series is to help us to understand that the people are the church. Somebody say that the people are the church. You say it. One more time like you mean it. The people are the church. The people, that group of people, is comprised of individuals, you and I. So our effectiveness as a group, our effectiveness as the church universal will depend, guess what, friends, on who we are and how we are as individuals. And so the goal of this series is to help us all to fold into God's great plan and understanding for what the church and who the church really is. I want to begin this series by talking about a, a dis- defining characteristic, a distinguishing mark of a follower of Jesus, somebody who's a part of this body, and that is our distinctiveness. Our distinctiveness. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that we are to be what? Salt and light. He says this, you are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it it gives light to everyone in the house. And so one of the major distinguishing marks of a follower of Jesus, of a member of this church, is that we are to be distinctive. And I would submit to you today that some of us have simply, I don't know, we've we've lost our saltiness. We've lost the illuminating quality of being a carrier of the goodness and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It seems that today one of the worst things you could possibly do is stand out, uh, particularly for your faith, particularly if that faith is an indictment up against the things that the world holds dear. And so my fear is that we have learned to blend in. We've developed a fear of standing out, and as such, we've lost 
one of the defining characteristics of a member of the church because we're supposed to change the world around us. We're supposed to transform the world around us. We're supposed to season and preserve, as salt does, the world around us. We're supposed to be illuminating in places of darkness. And should we ever lose that distinctive quality, um, that's the ball game. I imagine that in a room this size, somebody in here is having a little trouble with their distinctiveness. Some of us have been uh, overcome by this risk aversion and this need to just not make any waves, say anything that might ruffle any feathers, and so we have lost our distinctiveness. And as we consider what it means to be a part of this church that's going to change the entire world, I want to issue a call this morning, and that is a call to stand out. A call to stand out. We look at a passage of scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning, and I believe this is a good starting point for this series because much of what God has called us to do will be different than what the world around us is doing. And so I feel that we should be challenged this morning and every morning to stand out, to be distinctive, to be salt, to be light. While you find that, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you that your grand plan for humanity includes us. And Father, I know that many of us, myself included, have a ways to go to get on your page and to be who you've called us to be. And I pray, Father, that for many of us today, that this would be the very beginning as we begin this fast, as we dedicate ourselves to just hearing you and receiving from you and responding to you. Father, I pray that you would speak powerfully today, that you would challenge and that you would change. Come Holy Spirit. Of course, Father, we lift up those who have been involved in the Yet another mass shooting, Lord, down in Texas, Father, we know that there are folks whose lives will not be the same. And so whoever they are, wherever they are today, Father, I pray that the comforter would be a comfort. I pray that your church would rise up and be your hands and feet in that dark place. Father, be with us this morning as we lean in. Bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 14, and this is the second pastoral letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church at Corinth. There's two big issues going on in this particular time in this church. There's a lot of false teachers, and these false teachers are causing people to challenge Paul's apostolic authority, and so Paul has been speaking to these two particular issues. And so one of the things that Paul is trying to help set straight with these young believers is this whole understanding of what Christian service is like, this whole understanding of what Christians should be up to, what they should be doing in an effort to please God. And we pick up here at verse 14, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says this, but thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, he uses us, the church, his people, to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God 
But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And who is adequate for such a task as this? You see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit. We preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. Knowing that God is watching us. Of all the passages one could pick in order to kick off a sermon on the church, I will admit that this is a peculiar one, but it is an interesting one to me because I believe that this is a helpful starting point, particularly if one of the keys to our effectiveness is our saltiness, is our distinctiveness, then I believe that this is a helpful starting point. From time to time, I'm asked, hey, preacher, how many ministers you got over there at the vineyard? And I just tell them whatever our our membership role or whatever our weekly attendance is, whatever that number is, that's what I tell them. That's how many ministers we have over at the vineyard because we are the ministers. You hear me say often that this is just the pep rally, right? Some of you think this is where I go to hear the man of God bring the tablets from the, you know, mountain. And the man of God is this, and oh, somebody's sick. Let me call the man of God to come over and pray. And somebody needs the gospel, share it with them. Let me, let me get the pastors over here. No, 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 no. No, that's not what we do here. In the vineyard, everybody gets to play. In the vineyard, everybody gets to do the stuff. We are the ministers. We are the ministers. And because we are all are the ministers, then we all should lean in today because. This has something to do with us. Paul gives us four helpful things that we should keep in mind as we consider that we are the church, a collection of individuals. The first thing that Paul highlights, as I see it, is that as members of the church, as the people who God has designed to do the heavy lifting uh, in this transforming work that he wants to do in the world, for those of us who have submitted ourselves to him, you need to know that we have limited options. We have limited options, and I probably just lost half the room right there because we love our options, don't we? Uh, We don't like to be tied down. Preacher, you can preach a good word. You can preach a word from the Bible, but don't limit my options. Don't box me in, right? Well, if you've come into the kingdom and you've given God the right to rule and reign in your life, One of the things that comes along with that in this fine print is that you have limited options. Paul says in verse 14, but thank God he has made us his captives and continues to lead us along in Christ's triumphal procession. How many of you like to consider yourselves captives? Slaves. But Paul uses those words a lot. If you look at his letters, he refers often to himself and those who are called according to God's purpose, those who are surrendered to God's plan as slaves of God. And I'm just telling you, as a black man, I don't love that terminology. We got some history with that word, and I just wonder if maybe there's a better word that the Lord might use, that maybe there's a better word uh, that, you know, in a, in a better, more 
you know, helpful way captures the essence of our relationship to God and his plan for us, there simply is not. Slave doesn't have options. The slave generally does not exercise its own will, and should his own will, if it were given the luxury of exercising it, ever become at odds with the will of his master, the slave knows that his master's will that wins the day. We, as the church, have limited options. And what that means is that what God has set out for us to do, we must do it at the expense of our own will. We must do what he set out for us to do at the expense of our own will. And my sometimes reluctant prayer is, let Lord, please do not let me experience your peace. Please don't let me experience your joy if I find myself outside of your will. Because I am captive to what you set before me to do. Captives don't have their own agenda. And some of you have found that you haven't reached that place of deep satisfaction with the Lord. You don't quite feel like a member of his body. You don't quite feel like you're in the thick of what he's doing, particularly where he's stationed you. And many people report that simply because they haven't committed to God in a way that has limited their options. They can still vote however they want to vote because the kingdom of God has not impacted their politics or their worldview. They can just date whoever they want to date just because the gospel simply has narrowed the field of potential suitors. They, they can just say whatever they want to say and go wherever they want to go and consume whatever media they want to consume and take any job that they want to take because the gospel has not, in some significant way, limited their options. And so they have gained the world, as the scripture says, but they lost their souls. They've gained the world. They have all these options, but they have found themselves outside of what God is doing. I hate to be the bearer of sober news this morning, but if you're going to be a part of God's church, you have limited options. And that truth gets to the next bit of truth that I believe Paul drops. In our limited options, we are tasked to do what we were created to do, which speaks to what? Purpose. Paul reminds us that we have a purpose. And on the one hand, that sounds really great. I'm made for a reason. God had something in mind when he created me. I'm just not an aimless wanderer. Oh, great. Until we find out what God made us for. Until we discover that what God has created us for is at odds with what we would have chosen for ourselves. You want to be a super important, wealthy business person traveling the world, and God has called you to go live in a hut in Tahiti somewhere and, and be a missionary. It's right? Purpose sounds good until you get your assignment. <laughs> because it's almost, it's, almost it's almost never what I would choose for myself. The timing, the things that roll out are almost never how I would have planned it on my own. But we have a purpose. 
Paul continues in verse 14. Now he uses us, the church, to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. Now, I think in these few sentences, Paul uh, is really helping us by helping begin to sort of describe what our purpose is. He says it plainly, our, God uses us to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere like a sweet perfume. And so the way I see it, our purpose in life, regardless of what your gifts and talents are, what field or industry you work in, our purpose is twofold. The first part of that is proclamation. Proclamation, and Paul says it right there in verse 14, that we are here to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere. And I understand that being told that part of your purpose uh, is to proclaim the good news of who Jesus is and to actually share this hope that you found like would send some of us running to the hills. Some of us would pay all kinds of money to the church, serve in all kinds of projects, lead all kinds of small groups. The church needs to dig, dig, dug, fine, I'll be there with my shovel, whatever, but just don't ask me to talk to anybody about this. Whatever you do, don't ask me to proclaim anything. I just get all tongue-tied, preacher, that's what I pay you for. I'll bring him here. You tell him about it. <laughs> I think that works in the beginning. I'll go along with that for a little bit. Uh, but I'm here to tell you that part of your job is to proclaim which should be easy because you could talk about everything else. You tweet about everything else, right? You find a good chicken sandwich or something somewhere, you like... Every, every, every little idea that you have, every political thought, you don't have any problem sharing it. But somehow, some way, we get a little tongue-tied, don't we? And we have to talk about the goodness of Jesus. And some of us don't mind talking about the fluffy stuff, the warm, fuzzy stuff, until we have to be distinctive, until we have to disagree, until we have to proclaim something about Jesus or something about the kingdom or something about God's standard that somebody might not like. Yeah. What if I told you that part of your job was to spread the knowledge of Christ everywhere? Everywhere. Everywhere. Second part of our purpose is to have presence. Proclamation is one thing, but, but presence is something else. I love the word picture that Paul lays before us. He says, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. In other words, just how I carry myself, how I relate to the world around me, how I relate to my coworkers, how I relate to my friends, how I relate to my kids and my spouse or my our grandchildren, or my grandparents, or my teachers, how I relate to the world around me, my social media presence is like a fragrance 
that goes up to God. But guess what? If it goes up to God, it's also going out to other people. And I guess my question would be to you, how do you smell to those around you? I see some of you, you know, not only how you, how you naturally smell in this moment, but what is, what is the fragrance that you offer up? Paul tells us that what God wants to smell from us is the fragrance of his son. He says that when we're operating in who, you know, being who, who we've been called to be, then a Christ-like fragrance goes up to God because we resemble his son. Because we're on mission, we're doing the things that Jesus would be doing if he were you, if he had your job, if he had your family, if he were in your community, you're living like Jesus would live in your shoes. And when you live that way, a Christ-like fragrance, because you're like Christ, goes not us up to God, but it goes out. And some of us, I don't know how else to say it, we don't smell very much like Jesus. We don't smell very much like Jesus. In other words, what we're putting out, what we're saying, what we're exuding, the fragrance that our life puts off simply doesn't smell like Jesus. Some of us are mean. Some of us are stingy. Some of us are racist. Some of us are bullies. Some of us are horrible witnesses for the gospel. I heard somebody say years ago that we're all witnesses for the gospel, for better or worse. Some of us are just good ones that draw people to Jesus. And some of us are horrible ones, and we have the opposite effect. We repel. Have you ever met somebody, you might even be a person yourself, who said, I don't want anything to do with church because of the people. If your God's anything like your people, no thanks. But there's some among us who've learned the discipline of living in a way that just naturally puts off a Christ-like fragrance. I want to smell like Jesus. I want to smell like Jesus to the world around me. I want to sound like Jesus when I talk. I want to love like him. I want to be about the things that he was about so that a Christ-like fragrance goes up to heaven and a Christ-like fragrance goes out to the world around us. This is who we are. But the third thing I see in this text is that Paul issues us a word of warning. If you're getting real excited about having a Christ-like fragrance and smelling like Jesus and walking in purpose, you can get real excited about that. But Paul doesn't want to discourage you, but he does want to offer us a bit of a warning. Verse 15, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. But this fragrance is perceived differently, Paul says, by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. 
Verse 16, he continues, to those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. How do you like that? But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. And so I, I feel the need, as I'm encouraging you to do the things and to live the life that will cause you to smell like Christ, to be distinctive in a way that is helpful and necessary and transformative to the world around us, I also want to warn you that everybody's not going to like your distinctiveness. Everybody's not going to love the smell that you put off. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed to destruction, but for those who are being saved, they know it to be the very power of God. And so there's two, two sides to this coin. Paul talks about those who are perishing, to the perishing, or those who have no interest in the things of God, for those who are building their own kingdoms, for those who see things their way and could care less about the things of God, rather, and even those who see the things and the truth of God as indictments, as offensive, they will not probably like your posts. They will probably not like the things that you have to say about God. In fact, you're very present. You ever been around somebody where you didn't say anything to them? You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't interact with them, but your presence brought conviction. You ever been in a place where everybody was getting into mischief, everybody was gossiping, and somebody tried to grab you into it, and you said, oh, oh no, thanks. Somebody took offense by that. Your very presence, your very righteousness caused them to feel judged. Well, who do you think you are? And some of us have been Christians our whole life and haven't upset anybody for the kingdom. I, I'm inclined to believe that everybody likes me as a preacher. If everybody's just high-fiving each other, that was so rich. That was so awesome. After, I feel like I'm not doing my job right because something about this should make you upset. Something about what I say, particularly if I'm saying what Christ has to say, might, should ruffle feathers. You might feel the urge to go and slash a tire or two just to put me back in my place. How is it now that the measure of preaching and good ministry has been how many people is in love with it? Jesus had a repelling effect to those who weren't interested in cleaning up their lives and engaged in laying down the thing and picking up the thing of the king of Jesus, like people tried to push him off cliffs. It eventually cost him his life. And so I feel like some of us, our goal in life is to be liked. And if you get real slick with it, you can twist the scriptures up and you can, you can extract all of the offensiveness out of God's word. You can go down the line of all the issues that are important and you can make little concessions and you can tweak this and tweak this and if you turn it sideways, this verse, this verse really doesn't say that that's sinful. And you can acquiesce to the culture because you want to be liked. I believe that Paul is saying to us that if we're doing this right, those who are at odds with God 
we will, we will be like a stench of death to them. Our presence and our proclamation won't be welcome. She said, so far, preacher, you're doing a really good job of convincing me that I should be active in this. There's more. There's more. Paul says, but all to those that are being saved. To those that the Spirit is drawing. Though they might be far, to those that the Spirit is drawing. It is like a life-giving perfume. And how many of us know is if we let the, those who are perishing dictate what we say and dictate what we post, those family members, those friends that you know are going to give you grief whenever you post something about Jesus, whenever you say something about Jesus, wherever you push back, far be it from us to let the perishing dictate who we are to be. Far be it from us to let the perishing dictate how we proclaim and have us alter our presence and extract all of the distinctiveness out of who we are as kingdom people. Far be it from us. Let that never be said of us, but may our lives be informed by how those who are being saved draw near when they smell that sweet fragrance of Christ. Those who have been called according to his purpose, those members of the body of Christ, people on mission and people on purpose will, with their words, proclaim truth, the goodness and the love of God, with their life exude a fragrance that smells like Christ to those who are being saved. It is the power of God at work. And some of you remember who you were before Jesus found you. Some of you remember how you came to be sitting in a church on Sunday morning, which is nothing short of a miracle for some of you. I know your stories. And you could point to a person. You can say names. You can give details. You could even... Uh, remember the location where the kindness of Christ, like a sweet perfume, was attractive to you while you were yet in your mess. Somebody wouldn't stop pestering you about the good news of God. Somebody, every day they had something posted positive about Jesus, and they took a stand when it was unpopular, but they loved you and they drew you to Christ. Some of you are here today because the fragrance of Christ was wafting in your direction when a member of this beautiful body decided that they were going to be salty, that they were going to, at great personal cost to them, put up a light in a dark place because they knew that in that room there was a good chance that somebody would fall categorically among those who are being saved that might fall among those who the Spirit is drawing, right? And so this gives me life, but I've learned over the years that it's hard for me to tell those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And I wish the Lord would make that clearer to me so I can know how to turn it on and off. Just put like a little sign above every building that says, in this building there are those who are being saved be nice today. Or, hey, there's nobody being, you know, there's nobody I want in there, so just kind of be your normal self. The, tr the truth is, I can't tell the difference. 
And I look back over my life, the people I thought, surely those people are well on their way. And I looked over across the room and said, that person, not so much. You know, the kingdom of God is full of people who got looked at and people that, "Mm, God wouldn't want that one. I found that I can't, I'm, not, I'm not really a good judge of that. And I'm glad I'm not. And I'm glad you're not. Because we don't get to pick and choose when or where we emit this fragrance of Christ. There's no time clock that we punch in and out of. There's people on mission and people on purpose. Like, this is who we're called to be, Christ's church. This is who we're called to be 24-7, every day, school, at work, in the marketplace. But Paul warns us, not everybody's going to love it. Not everybody's going to love it. Fourth and final things I see in this text is God is watching. God is watching. And the the invisible nature of God, I believe, makes him quite forgettable. Isn't that right? And it's no wonder why we have to fast regularly and kind of force ourselves to re-engage and connect to God because the things of this world, the people of this world, the trappings of this world, seem so much more tangible than God is. Seems so much more important than touchable and feelable, and so therefore are at the front of our minds in a way that God should be. Um, It's helpful to understand this because we can lose sight of the fact that God is watching us. Paul says in verse 17, you see, we are not like the many hucksters who preach for personal profit, They preach the word of God with sincerity and with Christ's authority, knowing that God is watching us. Some of you, when you hear that, you go, dang, I forgot that God is watching me. I I forgot, you know, and sometimes, you know, as we try to walk this out, as people of God in the kingdom of God, we get caught up in the rules and regulations. We get caught up in all the do's and the don'ts. We got caught up in our selfishness and our religiosity and going through the motions, and we forget, we can't forget that God is watching us. And I think that Paul says this particularly because as we read and walk through this, we can forget who the main audience is in the show of our life. We've talked about those who are perishing. We've talked about those who are being saved. We're talking about having our lives be on display so that we can help transform the world around us. And so while those people are in the audience, those people are observing our lives, I think it's helpful and necessary for us to remember that God is the main audience member, that God is watching. Whether, we are not, whether or not we are on mission, whether or not we are living our lives on purpose, whether or not a Christ-like fragrance rises up to his nose matters because he's called us according to his purpose and his plan, and it matters most 
what he thinks of my life. It matters most what he thinks about my proclamation and the presence that I walk around with and not someone else. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but some of you have forgotten that God is watching. I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but somebody, this might be news to you that the God who created you with purpose and mission and intentionality is watching to see how you live that out. No matter what we talk about over the next couple of weeks, I want us to remember that God is watching. And my goal in life and your goal in life is to make sure that God is pleased with my life and how I live it. I want God to look at how I relate to my wife and say, you know what, that's how, that's how I drew it up. That's how I planned it. I want God to look at how I relate in my professional vocational life and say, you know what, yep, that's how a person should relate as a teacher or as a police officer or as a greeter at Walmart, like the Lord would say, that's how it's supposed to be done. God is watching. As you lead your small groups and as you pastor and as you do work, even in the kingdom of God, God is watching. And so my question to you as I land this today is, are you living a life that would be pleasing to God? And the worship team, you can come up. When God comes along and gets a a whiff of your life, do you smell like his son? You smell like his son? When God tunes in to the things that you proclaim and the things that you say and the things that you talk about, the things that you are about, the Lord leaned down and said, yeah, that sounds like my boy. That sounds like my boy. And some of us have work to do and part of that work means is that we will re-engage with our distinctiveness, whatever that might look like for you. Now, if you're not super active on social media, this doesn't mean you have to go and post scriptures, right, and share sermons all day long, right? I mean, but I just believe we've been a little too quiet about this. And my prayer as we work this week out is that the Holy Spirit would just begin to highlight little places of your life where there are active decisions being made that keep you quiet, keep you seated when God has called you to stand, keep you quiet when God has called you to speak out. This, friends, is a call to stand down. I pray that as we worship today, the Spirit would join us in pushing us forward and out so that we can be his hands, his feet, that we can be a Christ-like fragrance rising up to the Lord. Let me pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you so much for this opportunity to hear your word. But as we often say, it's one thing to hear, another thing to receive, as another thing altogether to respond. And so, Father, uh, I pray that we'll respond to this word in a way that you would be pleased with. For those of us who are bound by the fear of man and what people might have to say about us, Father, I pray that you would break that by your spirit. For those of us who have made intentional steps to 
to be less salty and to be less light. Father, I pray that you would arrest us by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and move us to a place where we're willing to identify it with you so that we could be your hands and feet in the places you've called us to be. Come in power. Do your work in us. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen.